0: Found the more I opened my heart to music, the more doors just opened in mm. front of me. It's like I'm convinced that that's the trick, really, yeah. is that you got to open yourself to it. Welcome to episode 74 of the Bayshed
1: Podcast. My name is Ryan Roberts. Double bass players, everything you need for the double bass can be found at lemurmusic.com. Bases, bows, strings, sheet music, bass accessories, pickups, preamps, amps, bags, cases, everything you need for the double bass can be found at lemurmusic.com. Use the promo code THEBASSSHED, all one word for 10% off. Without a doubt, my favorite cables on the market are Tsunami cables. They come with a lifetime guarantee. That's right, buy the cable one time. Something goes wrong with it. Talk to the folks over at Tsunami. They'll switch it out. Buy the cable once. Buy a Tsunami cable. Use the promo code The Bay Shed, All one word for 10% off. If you're like me and you bring upright and electric to the same gig, huh? you're doing some doubling, check out the Trickfish Trillobite AB box and preamp. I love it. I love it. I use it all the time. Fantastic preamp. I also use their single channel preamp, the Minnow. Uh, I use that more for the home recording stuff that I do. But live, I use the Trickfish Trillobite exclusively. Check it out. Trickfishamps.com. Use the promo code the Shed, all one word, for 10% off. Welcome to another installment of Live at Lemur. That's right. This episode was recorded in the showroom down at Lemur Music. There's also a video component to this episode that will be released shortly along with the video of episode 71 of the Bay Shed podcast, which was my talk with Jimmy Jazz Prescott. I want to thank everybody down at Lemur for inviting me to partner with them on these episodes. Uh, there's a few more in the works. We're just sorting out schedules because, you know, the world's the world's opening back up again and cats are hitting the road. So trying to figure out times that'll work for everybody. On the topic of the folks at Lemur being the best, they sent me a book. They mailed me a book titled Double Bass, The Ultimate Challenge. Now, if you are a listener of the Bass Shed podcast, you know I screw up last names all the time. Like, all the time. So here we go. Uh, I'm hoping, like I was doing practice runs on on Jeff's last name. His first name's Jeff, the author of Double Bass, The Ultimate Challenge. Jeff Bradidich. Like, I think that's right but i don't know. uh b r a d e t i c h. braditich. Brad at itch. jeff, jeff braditich. <laughs> sorry jeff. I'm so sorry man. <laughs> the book double base the ultimate challenge. Um, the books have never been my thing. like i don't really go through them cover to cover. i have i have but that's not, that's not the best way I kind of get information, right? Like, I want to play, I want to do it, I want to feel it, I want all that. So books, books, um, they're not my preferred source of education. Uh, but I always find something useful in them. And so when, when the folks at Lemur sent me this book, I was like, okay, okay, I'll check it out. I'll check it out. And I started skimming through it immediately. I was blown away by how thorough this book is. It talks about everything, like everything, everything in such detail, uh, but it's it's laid out and the language in the book, it's also very approachable. So it feels, it actually feels like you're in a lesson with Jeff just by going through the book. I think it's amazing. Uh, Double Bassists, if you're interested in checking out another method book, I highly recommended this and that's coming from someone that does not regularly recommend method books. Uh, again, the book is Double Bass, The Ultimate Challenge by Jeff Braddich. I really hope I'm getting that right. All right. On the episode is double bassist and luthier Jason Brown. I initially met Jason while hanging out at Lemur Music a few months back. Jason is the luthier at Lemur, and he was in the workshop working on a bass. When I met him, we started to chat a bit. and I was interested to hear from him on the podcast. Uh, since I met Jason as a luthier, I kind of came in with some topics I wanted to discuss. I knew he was building C extensions for double basses, and I knew that he converts basses into flyaway basses. I was curious about uh, all that actually the, the process of converting a bass to a flyaway bass I'm glad we had time to discuss it but just a few minutes before we started recording this Jason mentioned that he had worked with Hank Williams III grandson of country music icon Hank Williams uh, I was definitely interested and curious about that so that's where our conversation starts uh, is how he met Hank three and some stories about the formation of the band and his time with the group and here it is Here's my talk with double bassist and luthier, Jason Brown. A couple things I want to get into. Uh, You build extensions. You build this bass extension. Yep. Cool. I want to talk about that. You also convert basses into flyaway basses. Yeah. I want to talk about that too. You just mentioned that you played with Hank 3.
0: Yeah. I definitely want to know about that. How'd you you get the gig? How'd that come about? That was interesting. Um, It was a long time ago at this point. I was his original bass player when he first set out to be Hank III. Okay. Basically, uh, it was about 1995. And I had gone to Branson, Missouri to fill in on bass for a friend's band that lost their bass player. And I always wanted to check it out because I've heard about Branson being kind of interesting. And I've always sort of been into old country yeah yeah. and branson's the place where a lot of the old stars decided instead of touring they would build a theater and have their their fans come to them and kind of relax oh interesting okay so it was an interesting format and the town itself was absolutely full of some amazing talent i mean just like people that are like done being on the road they want to live a normal life and you kind of can in branson you can go like clock into your theater job you know (laughs) you do your matinee show and literally, the theaters have time clocks for the musicians, really? some of them. You know, and you, you leave your stuff on stage, pays really well, and it's super comfortable because the theaters are posh. It's yeah. like little Vegas, you know? Okay. So I wound up there, and at the same time, Hank 3 had just began his show, and Willie Nelson lent him a theater okay. like, that he had a theater he, that he bought years ago and just, I guess, wasn't using, and it was kind of okay. down the hill off the strip and... And at that time, right before I went there, I'd been touring with No Effects as their guitar tech, as a friend of mine. And um, I went out and did that. It was really interesting and fun. But uh, So when I'm in Branson, I ran into Hank at the bar at the club I was playing at. Yeah, And he was like, stood out, you know, because Branson's fairly like conservative looking people and okay. older people and then here's this young guy he's 21 years old and he had long hair and yeah. you know trippy dude and then someone introduced me to him It's like, yeah this is Hank Williams grandson and stuff and I'm wearing a no effect shirt and he's like you like punk rock man? I'm like oh yeah totally and so we just became friends okay Right away. And, and uh, so it turns out he had an electric bass in his band. He didn't quite have the band mm. formed yet that he was envisioning. Yeah. So he's like, Do you want to play in my band? And I'm like, So what do I, sure, what do I, What should I do? And he goes, Just <laughs> learn a bunch of Hank Williams songs. And, All right. And I'm like, Sounds good. And I went and bought Hank Williams' 40 Greatest Hits, you know, like the CD. Yeah. And I knew who he was, but I hadn't ever really liked. Dove into his music. So so I started listening to that. and I, I literally was hooked. I was like, damn, this is good. Yeah, You know, it's like amazing. And I always thought Hank Williams died like when he was older. You know, I just didn't know the details. And then I learned he died when he was 29. And really? Like, Holy crap. This guy changed music and yeah. made this kind of mark in that short period of time. Yeah. And so I was really, um, you know kind of infatuated by it, and Hank Three turned out to be a really cool guy, and we became good friends, and when the Branson, um, you know, the band came together, we had a real lineup that looked like Hank Williams, you know. Okay. Hank Three wore his dad's nudie suit
2: back
0: <laughs> when his dad was young. Yeah. And it used to fit him, because Hank Three's really skinny. Yeah. But Hank Jr. was too. Like, when you look at really old um, pictures of him, he looked a lot more like his dad. Okay. So our show was real legit. Like it, you know, Hank Three's wearing the nudie suit. We had a steel player and we had a fiddle player from Hank Jr. Band. And now we had the upright bass in there. And the whole thing just kind of came together. And it was weird as the curtain would open and our audience would be like, 80 years old you know like <laughs> just total blue hairs and everything right. like original Hank face yeah, yeah and some of them had tickets you know like we autographed this ticket <laughs> this is like from a Hank Williams senior show yeah. and, you know and he'd be signing that stuff so it was just kind of a mind blowing experience and that it was all opposite like our, the way his career started, he started with really old fans, and we worked our way towards young fans, mm-hmm. as opposed to like starting with young fans and growing old with them. Or yeah, 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 exactly. That's a normal so, trajectory, and it was a it was a real trip. So when that when that show wound up, you know, we did that matinee and the evening show in Branson for for like the rest of the season. Okay, and then Branson's seasonal; like they have a, you know, when the weather's good, there's shows. And then there's like a Halloween little period, and then they have a little Christmas period, but it's not enough really. You know, basically the season's right. over. So he moved back to Nashville, and I moved back there with him. Mm-hmm. And we started practicing and building the band. And then first thing was a tour to Japan. Okay. And uh, that was really cool. And at the time, I didn't know what I was going to do because I was like, you know, he had, his show wasn't really off the ground yet. Yeah. So we weren't working and I was like, you know, barely had any money. And so I went to Gibson, you know, cause I do lutherie and they hired me for the custom shop. Okay. And I was like, cool, you know, I had to do all these tests and stuff, but um, it looked really cool, you know, cause it's Gibson guitars and then it's the special part inside right. of it where they did the really cool stuff. So right when I was about to like get hired, Hank goes, we got a tour in Japan. And I was like, sorry, custom shop. <laughs> you know, I'm kind of waiting to do this music thing. Yeah. And so I just stayed with him and we went to Japan and we played like the blue notes in Japan, okay. which was totally bizarre. Because yeah. they're all, you know, typically jazz clubs. Sure. And that was the beginning of it. How know? is
1: that music received? I mean, something that is so American. How is that received in Tip- Japan? It,
0: what I would call a typical Japanese fashion, which means unbridled enthusiasm for sure. things they like. Yeah, they're yeah. Like, it was... You met, I met Japanese cowboys. They had, like, holsters for their cell phones. <laughs> they had, like, you know, Western shirts. Yeah. Um, they were clearly fans. They weren't just, like, you know, coming to, out of curiosity to right. see something. They were just... They were invested. They were there. They knew why they were there. And, okay. And it was an amazing experience. It was nice. really cool. And, After Japan, did you keep working with Hank 3 in the States? Yeah. I ended up doing that for about seven years. Oh, wow. And just became a... He had an interesting start, and it was it was rough. It was all backwards. Everything was always backwards with what I would say that whole experience. Like we got this super old school manager named Jack McFadden, Mm -hmm. who was like the last of the cigar chewing,
2: you know, (laughs) sits
0: behind a big desk, you know, ball blaster, you know, and. uh, so he was Hank's manager, and he had an amazing legacy. He it was McFadden Owens. McFadden was the name of his first company, and that was Buck Owens and Jack McFadden. Okay. And their first artist was Merle Haggard. Okay, and those guys really put the Western, like Bakersfield sound, on the map. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And everybody thought, oh, Jack would be perfect for Hank. You know, he's old school and gets this stuff. And and they didn't connect at all. It was really really just from the get-go, it went south. And like Jack was like, We're gonna get you on the radio. I got all these songs from writers that you'll like, you know. And he was picturing producing Hank Three more to be a, you know, get some hits on the radio and right. just do what he knew how to do. Right. And Hank Three's like, I don't want to do that, man. I hate these songs, you know. <laughs> he goes, I got you a deal on Curb Records. He's like, I hate curb records. <laughs> and it just was like that from the get-go. There was no um, understanding between them, you know? Shit. but then Jack made me the band leader, which okay. was interesting because he he saw that I knew what I was doing in that realm, and you know, and I was he liked the bass, and he I was just always kind of straightforward about it, and I had a connection with Hank that was made yeah uh, really made it accessible for him through me you could be the middle man and like speak both people's a, language a terrible place to be
2: yeah <laughs> it was well, a when no win, fighting yeah
0: no <laughs> win situation because you know he'd try to call hank and hank wouldn't answer so he'd call me and i'm like now i'm stuck if i don't get him in touch he's mad and if i do he's mad. Sure. so it's like sure. real fast i realized it wasn't the yeah. best you know but it was interesting okay it was a good spot to be in ultimately you know, but as far as experiences go but it wasn't did you do some records
1: with Hank? did
0: I what did you do some records with him yeah played on all the first records which was an interesting experience too because they did the uh standard Nashville thing like where they but by standard I mean I think this is how the formula usually goes is that you bring in you have a new artist that like in Hank's case he's got a name Mm -hmm. a lot of new artists aren't even known yet so just take a chance you know and so they don't usually use like the artist's band you know right. like this guy just moved here from oklahoma he can really sing you know he's getting the deal his band isn't you right. know what i exactly. mean and it's like so they'll demo the guy's songs if he has a catalog of good stuff already or or they're already performing but usually they'll bring in the producers favorite guys which are all the a-team in nashville yep. you know the big names sure that are Just on guys they on the records. You can and grab done. any of the hits and go. They're those guys, yeah. you know. So they did that with us. They brought in this, the road band because we were already out touring and had a bunch of songs, and and then they brought in some new songs. And we demoed all the stuff. And then they brought in the A team. And I was like, oh well, sucks. <laughs> I so, so wanted to be on it. But yeah. then they called me and they go, hey, do you want to play on this record? We like the way you played better. Great. And I was
2: like, yeah. Yeah. So then I was
0: like. On all this stuff after that, okay. which was great. And then and, uh, everyone else was all these A-team guys, you yeah. know, like Rob Jacobs on the fiddle, um, Greg Morrow on the drums on a lot of them. Uh, we had, like, Red Volkart I brought in on the guitar okay. from, from Haggard. And by the second record, I got to bring in most of the players I wanted. So oh, wow. we got away from the more generic... Um, a Team Nashville sound, and we got guys that I was used to playing with it, had much more of an identity sound, sure. you know, like Red. It's just an amazing telecaster player. Uh, we had Johnny Paycheck, steel player, Big okay. Jim Murphy. Um Jim Riley came in and played on drums from Rascal Flats, nice. was on the road with us. And I got a lot of these guys on the road too, which yeah. was amazing. You know, they were like on the bus with us and sweet. I had at one point I had you know i had murph on steel red on guitar jim riley on drums vernon derrick on the fiddle from hank jr and it was just an all-star band it yeah. was just amazing i mean it's just like it just melted faces <laughs> you know it was such a, a blessing to play with you know and these guys were fun because they'd all been around and just like sure they had stories you know from so i mean for seven you know, years my... and at this point you're you're really in the band,
1: like you're really entrenched. Your your spot is really uh, you're protected. You know, it's, you're the middleman between yeah. Hank and the management. You're basically MD and picking the players. You're doing the records. What happened to make you not do the gigging? Um, well,
0: also Hank was my roommate. Finally, at one point, oh, okay. So, had, <laughs> so it was it was all Hank twenty four seven. It's a lot. You We're know, okay. on the road, and then we because um, he had a real rough breakup with a with his gal of a long time. okay, And it was another Jack McFadden thing. Jack's like, you got to get a house way out in the country so that no one messes with you, you know, because he had this idea like, you know, you be a big star and you live yeah, you far know, away. remotely. You don't yeah. want to be in town. You want to be like special, it was like so, a bad idea. So he put Hank three like 40 miles out of town or something, you know, like way out on the outskirts in some town that was, you know, down yeah. the 40 to the east of Nashville, miles. And then he had fallen out with his girl. And now he's living in this like trailer home on a bunch of land by himself in the sticks. Oh, man. And it just got really depressing, you know. And then yeah. his dog died too. Oh, it was geez. awful. His dog of, of many, many years, um, Baxter, I think it was like, we came home one day from a tour, walked in the, the door, because like, the bus always came and went from his house. Mm-hmm. So we park our cars there and the bus would come and pick us up. So we came in, unloaded all the crap, and I walked in with him and the poor it was an english bulldog or some kind of bulldog and he walked up to us said hi got in his chair and died (laughs) like this dog oh like he was old he just like his head we saw his head drop and hank goes baxter and that was it the dog was gone he like waited for him to get home wow and then died and then so He's like, let's bury him quick because it's like, I don't want him to get stiff. I remember yeah. him saying that. And I was kind of like, yeah, <laughs> let's do that. <laughs> so we go outside and we start digging this hole and it's like so sad. And then it starts raining. Oh, my gosh. Like really hard. And then we hit this pipe. Like right where we chose to dig, there's this, we only made it about this deep and there's this <laughs> fucking pipe. And it was just like, you could just see Hank's like it's just like losing it you know yeah I, I was like this is too sad i was like, yeah, like what else is gonna happen am "Go in the house i'll i'll make a new hole and we'll take care of this and he did and i okay. finished up burying the dog you know had to start over where there probably wasn't a pipe yeah right but it was pretty sad so he was all depressed and it sucked out there and so he moved into my house because i lived in east nashville and okay had a you know much different scene, right in town. You sure. know, my house was like,
2: yeah, you were of, in it,
0: full of life, and you yeah. know, and it was like a cheerier place to be. So sure. you know, and then he was in town, and much more easier. It's no, it's hard to go into town when you live forty miles of outside of town. You got to yeah. have a good reason, and right, you can't just run downtown and have a drink at the bar or something. like right. it's move, an event. You know, or, yeah, yeah. So, so that worked out. But then I think what ultimately, after seven years of everything it was um it got pretty you know a lot of intensity being hank three i think Mm -hmm. you know because we were started as a hank williams band basically playing hank williams songs then we added some hank jr stuff then we added some of hank three's rock stuff that he had written and then became Ask jack which was like the death rock version of him okay and it so the show kept evolving and it was really cool as it did but we never got rid of old songs almost ever so the right. show had started out two hours long or hour long and then it was two hours long then it was three hours long pretty soon it's three and a half hours long
2: Yeah,
0: we'd take an intermission right in the middle and he'd warn people yeah, we're gonna um, take a break and we're gonna come back and there's gonna be a lot of FUs and yeah, stuff yeah, like right, that right, right. You know, so if you're not into that kind of stuff thanks for coming and okay that's because curious. we had a lot of old fans that were confused by it or offended even, you sure. know, they were just like,
2: they know, came to hear one you thing know, didn't and come then, to see this crap. What's yes. this?
0: So he was really good about giving him kind of two separate shows. Like, okay. Here's your genuine old school country, old country show. Yeah. And and then we take a break. Then we come back and it's like. Definitely a mosh pit. Yeah. You know, it was okay. a whole different show. Yeah. And it was amazing chemistry. Like in Texas, I remember a lot of shows where we'd have like bull riders and punk rockers. Yeah. And they just we're like magnets to each other, yeah, you know, They're that's kind like cool. of on both sides. Yeah. The bull riders are like, let's get in that pit. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and they get knocked on their ass and they knock people on their ass. And it was just like pretty spectacular uh, to watch. Nice. It was, it's like interesting. Nice. But finally it got like, um, I met a I met my wife. That's okay. where really did things. Um, And we were in Madison, Wisconsin, and we we're on tour up there playing the, at the Barrymore. And, Hank and I went to go get burritos, and there was this woman standing in front of us. And she, I like really thought to myself at the time, "Wow, that's the kind of woman that some lucky guy marries," mm-hmm. you know. And, uh, and I do not think yeah. it was me. I mean, it was the last thought,' that yeah. I was like, yeah, some lucky guy that's some somebody else, yeah someone else's life yeah. It's completely different, you know, I'm like, I'm out here on the road like a bum and
2: <laughs>
0: can't can't afford a woman like that, and whatever you know, so ended up meeting her that night, turned out she uh-huh. worked for the promoter and was Uh-oh. in the theater. And, and we started hanging out and we kept hanging out and have been married to her 22 years now. Congratulations. That's very cool. But at the beginning, it really interrupted our friendship with, with Hank 3, I think it was just like then I made the bad idea of having her move into our house
2: because
0: mm. she had just finished college. And okay, we probably should have got our own house in retrospect. Yeah, that, that's a But it was already a place sure. I'd been living the longest. You know, right. It was like my place. But it would have been easier to just leave him there because he was like settled in real well. But so he moved out to his girlfriend's, it was just down the street. Okay. I moved my future wife in and yeah, it strained things a little bit. And okay, but at the same time, he was like playing bass, started playing bass in Super Joint Ritual, you know, okay. with, with the Pantera dudes. Yeah. And um, things were just crazy. Like it was, he was always a real stable, super thoughtful guy, but. At that point, I think things were crazy. You know, there was a lot of outside influences, drugs, so, too much partying. Yeah. Did he get wrapped yeah. up in
1: the persona of being, uh, you know, an artist now? And like, not the persona of an artist, but getting carried away with getting some recognition and I think all, was, all the
0: things that they can af- afford. And looking back, I would think it's safe to say it was more like other people got wrapped up in that. Mm. That's with my perspective was that people started treating him differently and started treating us differently. And people are always drawn to like the star effect, you know, and I think he really avoided that. He's actually a super down to earth guy and he never really wanted to. Identify with that. He wanted to make a mark musically and and a statement of just being himself. And yeah, and now like, living in the shadows of either his father or yeah, his it's a tough spot to be in. I Absolutely, mean, when you, know, you come it's from like, that kind of family lineage, he lives in the shadows of two of the legends of country music. Yeah. And Hank Jr. is no joke. I mean, the guy's a multi-platinum yeah country artist and huge. You know, uh, so he, there he is. All these expectations, everybody had these different ideas. People would be just sort of like. you know and kind of it's hard to be around that i learned that you know it's 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 a sort of turbulent waters all the time you know it never really settles down and here i was like starting to feel the urge to settle down partially because i was always out on the road and i had got some guys in the band that were like they were older these were like superstar guys from you know sidemen from Way back, but they were basically stuck on the road. You yeah. know, and it's like that was their life. Yeah. You're 60 now. <laughs> and you're still doing it, you know. You have to keep doing it. Right. Yeah. And I could I just knew from talking to them that they were sort of like, yeah, I'm stuck on this bus with you punks. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And we would party a little hard, and I saw some guys just be like, not just again, you know, we yeah. have like uh, really long drive ahead of us so we'd take acid or something, right. you know, and I had every light in the bus change to different colors because i collected <laughs> lighting gels from backstage at some clubs, you know, and I'm like, put them on the lights there were not even any white lights in the bus so we'd, We'd hooked up a bass amp in the back room for, uh, you know, so we could, like, crank music. And yeah, yeah. it would just sound like, you know, <laughs> like insane. And I remember one time we had Terry Clark's sound man. He was an awesome guy. He was, like, the best sound man ever. But he was a, kind of like a normal guy. And we were driving from Texas to New York City or something with no brake. Like, okay. The next gig is in New York. So, so we just turned on the party. <laughs> How long of a drive is that? The drive? Yeah. About an acid trip. About <laughs> <laughs> the length of an acid trip. Okay. Like by the time you burned out and went to bed, and then you woke up and yeah, you like, it's New York." But yes, yeah, but it was a little different. It took a lot longer for that guy, I think. Yeah, you know, because when he realized what was happening, I just remember him sitting in the front lounge, and he goes. I was like I think he's crying because <laughs> even in your bunk, you're not going to escape this. We're just going up and down the aisle the whole time. Yeah. The doors are slamming. Music's just like cranking in both ends of the bus. Yeah. And you know, and it's like it was. I don't blame the guy for being sad. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. But um, it, it was a uh, not the environment that you know for everybody. But sure. Right at that point in my life, when things were getting the craziest, then I'd met my future wife and. I remember looking out the window once. I'll never forget. It. We were in Piccadilly Circus in London, you know, like, and there's apartments and stuff around the, the road that goes around. Okay. And I don't remember where we were heading, but we were going around the circle and it was 5 p.m. And window after window was like these British families sitting down to dinner. Right. Just like. The husband the wife yeah. kids it didn't repeat yeah it was just like and then again and then again and i was like it was like normalcy like what normalcy and i'm like thinking i know people think it's cool like oh i'd like to be on that bus touring with a band you know and i was starting to go i'd like to be in that in that apartment <laughs> yeah, at that yeah, table. yeah. And it was a strange situation because I knew if I was in that apartment sitting on the table, I'd see a bus go by with musicians on it. Go, I wish I was on that. You know, so is always greener, yeah. 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 But no sooner did I wish that, than that immediately is when I met my future wife. And this was, she was a sort of, you know... Wisconsin woman and family oriented. Sure. And next thing you know, it just yeah. flipped into that. Okay. It was the weirdest thing. Okay, it was like a like a gift from God. Really, it's like oh, you want that here? Yeah, here it is. And so yeah, it sounds like you came along at just the right time too. It like- was weird. Yeah, and and at that time, Hank was you know losing some momentum with what we had started. I think and really into the super joint thing, but then he picked it back up and he toured for years mm-hmm. after I left. Which yeah. Was around two thousand two or. Or something. Okay. Is he Um, still out there doing it? What? Is he still out there doing it? He's not. He's he went off the road probably in twenty fifteen or fourteen or okay. Ten? I don't know. It's been forever. He just stopped touring, yeah. You know, he had a good run. I mean, I was paying attention to what they were doing after I left, and yeah, and uh, you know, he was building on the career and doing you know, doing lots of good dates, lots of things, yeah, had a you know, ever growing fan base and stuff, right? But then I think he just burned out. But he always told me, he said, One day I'm not gonna be able to sing this death rock crap, and then (laughs) we'll um. You know, take a break and come back and do the old stuff. Again. Yeah, right. And so maybe that's what he's doing. Sure. I talk to him every now and then, you know. Okay. Back to Nashville and, you know, text. Yeah, sure. Just well, check in. Text every year or two or something yeah. like that. But He's a good dude. I've always considered him a really good person and a friend. And Great. He just got stressed out. It's sure. a tough world to be around. And Well, it's it was the same. It's super sure. hard being him. It was super hard being his friend. Because it was like I was the go-to, I was like his right-hand guy and his mom was always after me to get through to him, too. Oh, wow. You can't get between a guy and his mom, you know, and and she was not always real friendly about it. It was Mm -hmm. a tough situation, you know, where you just couldn't. Couldn't navigate it. Right. I just didn't know how to navigate it, really. It was like. So, a- so then when you left and then started breaking up and you started
1: investing more in a home life, do you immediately call up Gibson and be like, yo,
0: can I get that yeah. can I get that custom shop gig back? No, I never did. I was busy around town and playing a lot because of, you know, okay. the exposure I got with being with him. And, sure. And one of my greatest fortunes was that one of the friends I made there right away was Dave Rowe. Okay. Who's um, Johnny Cash's bass player. Excuse me. Yeah. And, uh, and he really befriended me straight away when I got to Nashville. Mm-hmm. And was just an awesome connection and friend, you know. And so he'd go on the road with Cash and he'd be like, hey, can you cover these uh, dates and this session for me? Okay. So I met all these rad people, like kind of subbing for days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He just introduced me to tons of people and was always... Super supportive, and cool. gave me this rad bass, this um, Baldwin made in Italy, it looks like a Hofner kind of with f oh, really? holes. And okay. I'd never seen one before. Yeah, but he just one day, like at Robert's Western World, he goes, "Here, Merry Christmas!" <laughs> Hand me the bass. I was like, "Whoa, yeah!" But um, so he he was instrumental too. So I was pretty busy in Nashville, but um, it was a rough transition, kind of because I wasn't. I was really unsure of my own direction, Mm -hmm. you know, that where are we going with this? Now I'm married, you know, and I've got this new young wife and stuff. But no kids yet? No kids yet. We were still in in Tennessee. So I'd always wanted to go back to college and study engineering because my dad was an electrical engineer. So I was inclined to that. Well, that sounds practical. I should do that. Yeah. So I started doing that, and it was went really well. I like, okay, you know, I was, I found that going to college after you'd already partied so much was way easier because yeah. there was no distractions. Because <laughs> you're not trying to be educated and party at yeah, the same right. time. Right? Yeah. You know, people are like, you want to go out? I'm like, nah. Yeah, have yeah. been there. Yeah, done it. Yeah, I've got that partying handled. So yeah, exactly. So <laughs> you know, now it was like the challenge was, can I do this well? And sure. so it was much easier. You know, because I'd gone to college a little before that, so I decided to go back, and I was just like, wow, it's easy to focus now. The college isn't yeah. so bad if you actually do the work. Cool, you know, right. instead of just blowing it all out. Sure. So, what kind of engineering? Um, I was going to go for electrical, okay, which is hard too because it's. Um, I guess they're all hard. I have a lot of respect for engineering. You know, it's basically yeah. Uh, it covers the the tough sciences, so, you know, sure. physics and upper calculus and all kinds yeah. of stuff. So it was going well but my wife was just really motivated to move back to wisconsin okay which wasn't something i'd ever considered that i was going to live in wisconsin Sure. Yeah. so so we did um she talked us into it and we moved up there and that was a whole different experience but i eventually um just dropped out of school because I needed to work and, and started playing again. Okay. And got in all Wisconsin? These bands. Yeah. And yeah. it turned out there's a really help, healthy music scene in Fox Valley. Okay. Appleton. That's like right between Green Bay and Oshkosh on, on Lake Winnebago. Which is uh, that's like I only know that as like an RV. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I think it means, uh, I've been told it means stinky water in Indian. Really? In like one of the tribes. So is that, the RV company from... That place? I don't know, but it wouldn't surprise me because so many things are from there. Because that's still a manufacturing base. Okay. Uh, like, where the, it hasn't collapsed yet. Like, right. Like, on, like, Pittsburgh steel mills. Yeah, yeah. So, there's, like, they make tons of paper. Um, you can see manhole covers probably out here on the street that say, like... Um, or something you know, really? like a okay. foundry there. Or Toilets is there. We played like their company party. <laughs> I'm like, weird. Yes, just, <laughs> Everything's toilet handles. Yeah, it's shitty gig, huh? <laughs> but, um, yeah. but it was a good experience. And I ended up in a reggae band, of all things, in Wisconsin with a guy from Fiji Okay. Pita, and the band's still going strong. Really? It's like a really popular regional group called Unity. Okay. And and it was fun. And we played year-round. I played upright bass mostly and, and the five-string and all reggae music. Yeah. And we played all over Wisconsin and northern Illinois and Upper Peninsula and just that whole region. And it was – no one missed a show. I don't think we missed a show because of the weather ever. Like wow. we go on a blizzard. And I'd be like, no way anyone's gonna show up to this. Yeah, they would. And the place would be packed. Yeah. Would just be people don't even care in Wisconsin. Sure. I saw, when I first started dating my wife, I saw people riding mopeds around like in winter. Yeah. They just got their feet down like training wheels <laughs> and went, <"Hurr." laughs> Like scooters and shit. I'm like, these guys are crazy, but they don't care. Yeah. So it turned out cool. Okay. You know, it was a and then that just slowly transitioned into um living in wisconsin way too long which was 10 years of like hey, i'm not used to winter you know i mean i in yeah. los angeles so right. minus 20 is yeah not no, really right. something you yeah here
1: you're 62 is cold you yeah know? you're like oh yeah. i put
0: on a coat and know. know, there it's like minus 20 if you get stuck outside you might die yeah you know? yeah, yeah, like, yeah yeah like what happened to him he's blue <laughs> so i was dreaming of moving back you know and finally we decided um Oh, in retrospect, moving there made sense because shortly after we got there, my wife's mom, not shortly, but maybe eight years after we'd been living there, um, my wife's mom got cancer and Mm. she died very young. And it was really rough. And Sorry to hear that, yeah. It was hard on my wife because they were really close. Of course. And so when I look back, it made sense. It was like a blessing, really, that we you went were there for there. those last. Yeah, that's, and she spent, that's good. And she spent a lot of good time with her right up to the end. And at that point, we had kids, and the kids knew their grandma. And they got to meet her and know her, yeah. If you would be out here, then and they maybe wouldn't have the relationship. It would have been much different. Sure. And even in Nashville, I mean, it's we were just close to the family yeah, there. Yeah. Know we're just miles apart yeah. instead of days. So so then when you move back here, is that when you get back into being a luthier? Um, the whole time I was always doing the luthier thing to one degree of, or another. Okay. Like I would do it even when we we're on the road with, with Hank. I built a little shop in my house. Okay. And we're just doing like I did Dave Rose bass. Yeah, And, yeah. and people would just, you know, word of mouth would come over and- Okay. And I'd met the vocal dude, uh, George Chestnut, who was like a legendary old school bass guy. He was real friendly and nice. He's long long gone, but... but then when I moved to Wisconsin, I started really doing it. Again, okay, you know, and, and just had like rooms full of bases. Yeah, like the front room of the house was like all bases, and couldn't walk in there. Okay, it was just laying everywhere. But Were you you like the local guy, like everybody was I was them. like the became the guy because I do a setup thing that's unique, where I really make the bass play. And okay, sometimes people catch on to that. What's involved someone, with the setup?
1: Like what's involved with this specific setup? Well, it's, it's
0: so it's really the shape of the fingerboard and the playability of the instrument. And I learned it. um, I was inspired by it back in the 80s because I moved from Southern California to Humboldt County Mm -hmm. to go to school the first time. And... Humboldt County is, you know, <laughs>
1: it's, it's not a focused it region. Really be hard region. to concentrate. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's not a like, focused
0: region. Yeah, it can be really, uh, focused is a good word. There's not a lot, lot of academics there. No, it's, yeah. I mean, Humboldt State University is a great school, but there's also Humboldt Bud. <laughs> yeah, okay. And it's just a magical place for a kid that grew up in L.A. Sure. to go up there. And it's like, wow, it was just like when i was 19 i had dark circles under my eyes and i was stressed out you know because i lived in la my whole life yeah and i just felt it i was like you know just on the edge i was like sure. falling down ready to snap you yeah, know? yeah <laughs> or yeah. something like the movie I, was, I, was like, <laughs> I gotta get out of here and, and uh we met a really cool friend that had been run over by a train and that's how come i met him it's just a bizarre story i worked at a Pasadena Honda, the motorcycle shop, because that's okay. my other passion is dirt bikes. Okay. Stuff. So one day, because I always went to the Wicker store across the street to for lunch, you know, yeah. to get a sandwich or something. One day, this new guy was working there, and he was like my age, and I'm about tw- nineteen or twenty at this point. And, yeah. And he had a, was missing his left arm. I think, oh my gosh. His arm, and he had this tourniquet thing, this like rubber thing with a tube, you know. Oh, kinda, yeah was draining it and I'm like it was obviously really fresh wow so i see this guy day after day and you know i didn't say anything about his arm because it's was... but after i'd been seeing him for a month you know he seemed really friendly and cool guy and we're getting to know each other and so i'm like dude i don't mean to be rude but i just gotta know but so you know, yeah. he goes you really want to know i go
1: yeah well as soon as someone says that like yeah. of course you do like you really want to know yeah. like well, no, I was just making conversation, yeah. but now... Hey, what are you going to say? Nah. Yeah, yeah. Nah, 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 now really, I really nah. have to
0: know. Get real, dude. I yeah. don't want to know how to Yeah, it. like, know, I'm really just trying to buy some gum and a sandwich. So his answer, I go, yeah, I go, yeah. And he goes, okay, let's go in the back.
2: So we go <laughs> in the back,
0: and he pulls out this pouch, and he's got a big bud and a giant pipe. Okay. And... He's from Humboldt. Yeah. Like he's from LA, but he lived in Glendora or something. Okay. And, and uh, he was rehabilitating, that's why he was down there. So he loads this big bowl, you know. And we were like, he's at work. We're both at work, you know. Yeah. I'm just across the street from my, from the Honda shop, where I I ran the parts counter and sold okay. motorcycle parts. And he's at the liquor store, where he's like the only dude there running this store, like selling whatever they got and yeah. making sandwiches and. And so we smoked this giant bowl in the back of the store, and he tells me his story. And he's like, yeah, I lived in Arcata and Humboldt and friends of mine, and I used to always hop this train to go to Eureka because there was a liquor store there that would sell us, you know, booze, mm. even though we were kids. So one day, he's hopped the train, and he goes, and the last thing I remember was looking up, and all my friends were looking down at me going,
2: dude,
0: and he fell off the train and it went over his arm ah. and it right off.
2: Ah. And,
0: and I was like, you know, and I'm all baked too. And I'm like, dude. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, But anyway, and he was like, yeah, it's it's really cool up there that when I'm better, I'm going to go back up and you guys should come up. And like my best friend, Brad, you know, yeah. um, we were hanging out all the time. And I'm like, you want to get out of here and move to Wisconsin? And I mean, move to Humboldt? Yeah. <laughs> Not Wisconsin. But uh, and he's like okay <laughs> I, was, I was real open-minded so we did we went up and we visited dave and it was awesome it's like we're in the redwoods and yeah and it was, and it was just it? like oh it was a different world than, yeah. than driving to like right. know, than anything or something. Idea, yeah. it was mind-blowingly different there was just beaches that looked like ansel adams yeah, you yeah. know, with bluffs and trees hanging over the edge and plants looked like bonsai trees growing on the cliff. And we were just like, this is awesome. So we did. We moved up there and we moved in with Dave and slept on his couch and (laughs) got our place and enrolled in school and started that life. But that turned out to be where my music really started. It was like, I had been a musician and I wanted to play violin and that's how come this happened. Yeah. As my best friend, um, Stefan Canals, got two best friends, um, was well, a violinist in first grade. He was already really good. And I was like, Mom, I want to play violin. Like Steph. And she's like, OK. And she made me take piano lessons. I'm like, That's not violin. Yeah. But it um, turned out it was a good idea, but still, yeah. it wasn't violin. But when I get to Humboldt, turns out there's an awesome music scene there like just everything my first band was this punk rock band called the schmidt heads okay and it was like three girls three guys and we were just rotten you know? It like, <laughs> you know the guitar player was really good he was like the only guy that could actually play in the band you know yeah. everybody else was like the other guitar player was all right everybody else was just greenhorns you know no. from hell it's like i i Dave came and made me play because they heard I had a bass. Okay. Like, you know, because I moved up there I had an electric bass. Yeah, you bass. owned one so now you I have to be one. I owned one yet. and I played it a little and my friend Dave that I was living with was like, yeah, my new roommate got a, he plays bass. Yeah. You know, and so this car pulls up one day in the driveway and they're like, they just come walking in and they're like, hey, you want to be in our band? And I'm like, <laughs> um, I don't really play. And they're like, you got a bass, right? I'm like, yeah. I'm done. And they're like, No problem. It'll be fine. It's just punk rock and stuff. The guitar player will show you what to play. So I said, yeah. And we went and rehearsed. And it was like awesome. Yeah. And uh, that started it. Like the bug got me. And I was like, OK, I got to get good at this. This is fun. I got to take it seriously. So I started studying and practicing for real. Nice. You know, studying theory and just got into it. And it turns out that that whole area was just unbelievable. Couldn't have been in a better spot because there was every kind of music. There were players that had left San Francisco, you know, that were jazz guys that okay. were just burned out. Right. And wanted to Something escape, else, yeah. You know? right. just, you know, we have some metal Quiet life, life in the mountains. Yeah. Sick of the city. But there was all this talent up there. So there was like, I played in a funk band, like a really good funk band. Like it's all Parliament and, you know, Maceo Parker. And sure? James Brown. Yeah. Um, very cool band, you know. Which is fun as hell to play on a bass, of course, you know, of and then a country band, a reggae band. then I got in this jazz band as I started getting better with a guy named Teddy Taylor okay, and played with him a lot. And it was just eye opening. You know, it took me all these directions musically. And I just had the enthusiasm at the time to like dive into each one. Yeah, and and just soak it all up. Learn it and find people to learn from. And, right. and uh, just it really like I found the more I opened my heart to music. The more doors just opened in mm. front of me. It's like, it was, I'm convinced that that's the trick, really, yeah. is that you got to open yourself to it and then it opens to you. Sure. You know, and you've got to just surrender almost. So yeah. I said yes to everything. People yeah. were like, You want to play in this in the horn band? It's like we play a bunch of Dixie Land horn music. You know? <laughs> and I'm like, Sure. Yeah, yeah let's do
2: it. Let's do it. it. Sure.
0: And then uh, there was a little local music store called Wildwood Music that was just, Awesome little place. And I always was hanging out there. Yeah. And uh, um the guy, like I was working on, I was playing a bass I really liked, the music man bass. I thought like, this bass is rad. <laughs> and the, the owner looked like Dennis the Menace's dad from the comic strip, <laughs> yeah. you know? Like you, you know what he looks like with the, with the glasses and the dark hair yeah. from the real old comic strip. Most people probably might not sure. remember that, but um so I was like this bass. It could play a little better. He goes, well, do you want to take it in the back and adjust it? I'm like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> My policy was to say yes to everything at yeah, yeah. the time. And I had been, like, apprenticing with a, a local guitar builder at this point called okay. Moonstone that was really cool. Like, the guy built a real high-end acoustic guitars with this mind-boggling inlay. And Okay. Are they still around? And he passed away two years ago. Um, they have a... If the website's still up, they have quite a legacy. He okay. was an amazing, amazing guy. He taught me really all the stuff I know to think outside the box and okay. understand Luthery. So yeah, i had been working with him. And then the music store was like, you want to adjust this? And I'm like, sure. Next thing I know, I had a job there. And I'm like, they're, right. they're luthier. And it turned out cool because I just, everything under the sun came through that music store. Sure to fix yeah and um i mean weird stuff like person brought me a sitar and was like can you turn this into a tambura?" i, <laughs> I don't even know what you're saying but i looked it up and i figured it out because i didn't yeah. you know i said yes to everything sure, sure. unless it was really weird but you yeah. know sitar to a tambura, sure i learned how to do it and i converted this thing then this dude brought me an, a guitar that looked like an arma it was made from an armadillo like literally, like an ovation, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. but they'd made the, the shell of the armadillo on oh, the gosh. back of the guitar and they put a top on it. And the guy's like, it doesn't play that great. Can you make this play better? And it still smelled a little.
2: You
0: know? <laughs> I was like, sure. Yeah. And then a lady came and she goes, can you put jazz chords on my auto harp? And I'm like, What? she goes I just want to play like she's obsessive like you meet these people in Humboldt that are just like you know they're so into what they're doing they're yeah. like a renaissance person they live in the forest Yeah. and they're you know they have been doing this 30 years Steve from Moonstone he goes yeah this woman has a feather dulcimer she plays it with a feather and I'm like what? <laughs> I guess that's a thing so I became really open minded so Yeah. Like anything goes to so whatever people are doing so I made her jazz chords for the auto harp I bought okay. a new like felt you know and figured out how to tune it Cut the felt so they played these different chords. Sure. I couldn't even do it now if I tried. I don't know what yeah. I was thinking. But <laughs> I figured it out. And she goes, "This is amazing." Yeah. You know, and so she, so she had that, and so that uh, living in Humboldt was just really a growth period sure. in every direction possible, That's musically, uh, Luthery wise. But the final step that took me to bass Luthery, was that I went to go my to my bass teacher's house there was a really good player in town named craig whips who's mm-hmm. passed away now he was a classical and jazz guy and okay like if there was a really good show going on there was a good chance he was going to be on the bass right um, and he was just had a level of authenticity about what he did You're like, yeah this guy knows what he's doing sure and so i go to my first lesson at his house in Arcata. i've got an old k bass at the time that i bought from Trevor Dunn from Mr. Bungle. Okay. Because they lived in town. Okay. And they were local kids, and they rehearsed at my house and got me evicted.
2: <laughs>
0: they had a party while I was out playing, and, it, and cops came and everybody came. And the next day, the landlord was like, "You boys are out. Everybody's <laughs> so, going. Yeah. You're out. This then. is it." Because she was already fed up with us. Everybody yeah, <laughs> always pissed at us because there was always bands there. So she kicked this out, but I bought this bass from Trevor and it was this old K and it was like hard to play. I didn't know any better. Yeah. You know, it was just like bad setup. Sure. And everything. So I go to my first bass teacher's house and I play his bass. He had this beautiful looking old dark German bass or something. And as soon as I start playing it, I'm like, this isn't right. It's just like plays itself. It feels like butter. It's just so easy. And he goes, well, that's Bob Doherty's work. He goes, you're friends with his son, Jeff. And I'm like, really? And he, so it turns out Bob Doherty's this legendary bass luthier that's worked all over the world and worked in New York City and mm. was really big and long term in L.A. And had kind of changed the sound of like TV bass and stuff because his work was like, you know, he was doing the work for all those guys that were right. doing those recordings, you know, okay. playing with Hal Blaine and stuff. Sure. Kind of the sound of the, the upright that growled and sustained and like yeah. you know and and it just opened my eyes. I'm like, I didn't know a bass could play like that. And right. And um, then I met Bob and you know and I'm still really good friends with with Jeff, his son, and and Bob through, you know, through Jeff. Yeah. But Jeff's an awesome guy we talked to a lot. But he enlightened me about you know, bass base military and how okay. much different it could be. He was so good at it and he was also a spectacular player and he was always up there visiting his kid. Okay. And he'd do local gigs when he was there. And it was just he was so good. You know, he would go around the world playing with operas and playing jazz and nice. He did all the work for Ray Brown and okay. his bass and would cover for Ray and stuff and it oh, wow. was just world class. Like yeah. you know, just like you sit there and you just humbled. Yeah. Like the guy's exuding something you don't know how you ever could get you know it's just like wow this is hardcore shit and um he was so awesome to watch play like i remember one thing that changed my approach to bass playing because he was taking a solo and he had a kind of a younger band because there was a lot of talent in that area and sometimes you could throw together a jazz band and be a few guys from the university and maybe an older guy that's Experience and a couple young kids that are, you know, sharp players. Yeah. So he starts taking a solo and nobody really comes down and gets quiet. They're like, you know, they're playing with him and, you know, and staying loud and he just stops and he goes, and you could have heard a pin drop, you know, because everybody was just like, "Uh oh, eh. yes, sir. Eh. And everybody stopped, you know, and he told me later, he goes, I spend the entire night, all day, all week, all year, accompanying everybody. Because when yeah. it's my turn, I want my turn. Yeah. I want to be able to hear it. Sure. And, yeah. And he had this very serious look, and I was just like, you know, and everybody just was like, stop. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I never forgot that, because I was like, that's so important. It's like, you've got to give the bass the space. Sure. Because if you're trying to take a solo, and you're trying to build something that's, you know, contrapuntal or something, and you... And the drummer's playing the same way, then yeah. you don't really have anything to play off of, and it becomes nothing special about what you're trying to sure. do, or you're forced to just try to hammer out a bass line, which is what you've been doing all night. Right. And so you really want almost the band to disappear, like just you know, like you hear a hi hat and you hear a little comping, some a good ton comping, of, a ton of sensitivity, yeah, yeah, and it's uh, so important, and then the bass. So it can be developed again, yeah. you know, in the you need like a dark canvas for the base to stand out yeah, yeah. against and and I never forgot that and try to always incorporate that and I don't not quite like Bob, you know, I don't yeah. stop. <laughs> yeah, right? yeah, yeah. If you're just being buried alive, you know, sure. you almost you have to speak up and yeah, yeah, look. Yeah. Come on guys, if there's a single horn player, he's not gonna be able to resist playing over everything on your solo. Right, right. Unless he has someone to talk to nearby. Yeah. yeah. Then he'll stop. <laughs> so you you almost want him to have a friend like, hey, that shit's yeah. looking at you. Yeah. You know, and then he'll be over there talking to you. Yeah. Well now there's cell phones. Now of, they just of cell phone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um I don't know. That's so he was he was instrumental,
1: no pun intended, in getting you into bass luthery yeah good <laughs>
0: good yeah he it was, wasn't intended he was really um so good at what he did like he would it all started to me in my mind I was like, what's this guy doing he's playing on the fingerboard differently
2: mm-hmm.
0: okay and he had a shape that he you know would do all of the old school playing and you could just tell when he had done a bass um it, it was, was almost like a signature. It was night and day different it yeah. was like wow this thing is just incredible. And I learned to recognize his signature work about how he touched the bridge and stuff. And um, I was at the Pasadena Symphony one time because my mom was, and dad were big supporters of that and mm-hmm. were like patrons to the symphony and had season tickets. So I went one time and spotted a bass on stage. I was like about 22 down here visiting my parents. And, and I, they took an intermission and my dad and I were up there looking at the the instruments and everything. The bass player was still holding his bass, one of them. And I go, hey, that's Bob Doherty's work. And the guy looked at me all perplexed. He goes, how do you know? Yeah, and I go, I could just see it. Really? It's like, he goes, you're right.
2: Yeah, what you was know? it? Was it something it was on the bridge or was it the bridge.
0: Okay. And then, you know, once I, once that got my eye, I, I noticed, you know, the fingerboard seemed a little different. Like, nobody would probably see it, but I became real sensitive to it. So sure. I could see and enough to like boldly ask the guy. Right, know, right. He goes, yeah. So um it was very pervasive what he did with bases and, and I started learning it and, and copying it. And most of it was what I learned through other bases. Okay. More than Bob directly, because in Humboldt he had at one time or another fixed two-thirds of the bases there. Sure. And then they would eventually come to me, you know, because I was the, the local guy now in the shop. Yeah. And I'd spot his work, and, so you were just and, seeing it come in all the time. Yeah, and I'd yeah. study it and really look at it, and then finally, um, I got to work with Bob. Okay, and, you know, which was great because I had all these questions of about course. things. And then I finally had him in person to answer questions in my shop, and we yeah. were working together on bases. Okay, and that really um, put you know the final understanding. And there's just, you know, probably mountains of stuff that, that he does that I don't know. But, sure. but I was able to glean a lot. And between that and the old uh, Moonstone guitars. Right. Like just Steve, kind of all coming together. I just kind of put it all together and, and kept going forward with it. And people kept bringing me basses, you know, because I, I was getting good enough at it that it was making a difference. And the word had spread. And, and then I got good at it. And finally, it got to the point where I started meeting people that said, hey, I tried to call Bob and they're retired, but they said to go to you. Okay. And I was like, yes. you made my day the first day I heard that. Okay. So I figured I must be doing something right. Yeah. How How'd you get into building the extensions? The extensions, um, it was at the first Lemur. Okay. Really, um, I'd been aware of extensions, but I uh, needed to start making some because there was a request for them. Mm-hmm. And at the time, also, I want to give props to Lisa Goss, who's LA sure. Bass Works. Absolutely.
2: She's yeah. awesome, and I've
0: known her for years. Yeah, she's done some mom took fantastic me to work on my bass. Yeah, she's really, really an artist and a nice person. And Yes. Um, my mom took me to meet her when she worked at, in Glendale at like Metzler's or Metzler's. Yeah, Metzler's Yeah. Okay. And I was like 18 and didn't even know like what was going on. I didn't me.
1: even know that she did actually. I've only known L.A. Bassworks. Since I've been in yeah. L.A., L.A. Baseworks is
0: just Yeah, there are a place to go. Yeah. And so at Lemur, we were making parts for her, um, like – the machine shop part, we were making uh, these metal pieces, okay, and and also blanks of ebony. And at the time, uh, the old owner had told me that yeah, that, you know they were this was Leemur's design, and we're making it for Lisa. But I later found out it was like Lisa's design, and we were making it for Lisa. <laughs> he was manufacturing so, her design for her. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, but I, I was not informed about that or anything. But so there were very many similarities in mine to hers. Okay. And uh, I've gone my own direction with some of these parts. I've invented a way to make these totally different and it's unique only to what I'm doing. But okay. But I also want to give her props for being a really good inspiration. Sure. For uh, where where my thing with those headed, you know, yeah. because like stuff like the adjustable the adjustability of the capos for tuning. Okay. Um, you know, is, that then, on, is that on that side? It, this was okay, no, stuff that she was deal. doing originally. I put this. And, uh, so I kind of took it it's a nice little this. different direction. especially the evolved, camera with it. But I want to so give her props for... That's these, so yeah, you can loosen these here. bolts and slide it forward or back um, because I use a math formula that I worked out to, to project where they are because it's okay. a formula for figuring out where frets are. Sure. But I couldn't figure out anything to project it this way. Like, you know, I only know the scale length, but I want to know where this, where this ends up and where this ends up and where this ends up. But it's a subtractive formula to figure out where the next fret is. You like multiply this. So we just kind of went. Opposite. What is that algorithm? I'm
2: curious. Um,
0: it's 17.5. 171 or something it's really uh, i don't know the de- exact decimal i've got it okay. written down but anyway so you measure the scale length you you multiply it by that you subtract the the product and then you measure the new distance and you do it again and that determines yeah, the difference uh, the gradient of small. how they go so
1: that's uh i don't know if that shows up on the camera but that's a little allen wrench yeah and a slider to move the the lever, you're in the
0: or the reason you got to do For that tuning. is believe it or not, there's a huge difference brand to brand oh. of strings. And I wouldn't have believed it if I hadn't seen it now. But I've made probably 80 or 100 of these things, and okay, and I've discovered that um, sometimes the string will be very different where it tunes up, and it won't necessarily be like this gap. Is bigger, and this gap's bigger. There's a strange thing like this distance to here to here is smaller than that on this really? particular base. That shouldn't make sense, right? It'd no, be like, it should It'd be like your F fret being closer to the F sharp, but sure. then uh, suddenly it goes ahead and keeps a yeah because pattern. the
1: same spacing does it. Yeah,
0: I would think it'd be predictable. Like this is going to be bigger. This will be bigger. This will be bigger, and this will be bigger still. But you can see right here, even on this base, it's not.
1: Okay, so, so these are all in position for tune. This thing's in tune, okay.
0: and um, so my formula works really well, and it puts the notes right in the center of the slots, or the okay. slots in the center of the notes, basically. But then you need a little leeway, like if you change from a tomastic to a, a parastro, or a you know a permanent string, or something, whatever the string
1: differences all change the the
0: brand be the same diameter and almost similar construction but you'll go wow it's tuning up differently because it's just a physical phenomenon and lately there's those guys that are making those frets for guitars you know that are temper tuned i forgot what their company's called but they they pop up on instagram all the time now okay and instead of straight frets the frets go like this and really? each
1: fret. I've only seen the fanned one. Yeah, so this selection. thing will blow your mind. It's, okay. a, it's
0: basically. It the doesn't look like a Yeah, the sound sure makes me nervous. Yeah, it's yeah, A little it's slippery. Sand. I mean, it's in there, but it's like, there's yeah. no earthquake stuff. Well, <laughs> fingers crossed. But um, that, so that when I saw that guy's frets, I go, "Hey, that kind of explains, you know, that things aren't as straightforward as you're led right to believe." Sure. And uh, tuning is a big issue. Like So on an electric bass, this is all adjustable. You know, it's like you the bridge will, each saddle will be in a spot mm-hmm. because the frets are all straight. Right. You know, but this is compensated. Yes. And on a double bass, this is straight. Yeah. So you don't know it, but... A good player actually learns to compensate everything, and you're actually not playing straight across ever. You're mm-hmm. playing where the note is correct. Right. And pitch yeah, I've never thought about that for the piano. It's what right, it, you know, because like, if you look at the bass's main job, it's to play on a classical stage with an orchestra. That's like that's the fundamental. That's what it did most of its sure. life, and, and its and its predecessors, or the cello and the violin too. They all played with a in that setting and then evolved from that. Sure. So you're constrained to that piano, which has become like, you know, very sophisticated with its tempered tuning. Mm -hmm. And it's just constant. It doesn't change. No one retunes the piano during the orchestra break or anything, you know, I mean, they might touch it up actually, but they don't. It's tempered and it's tuned the way it is. So everybody in that orchestra is actually playing to that. Sure. You know, the best players do it just so naturally and easily that you don't hear any problems. Um, but what you're doing is they're compensating, and everything is all different. And then the notes are, they're, art. they're not science, really. I mean, there's a science behind what a string does. And I think it's cool because it's done that since the first string ever. Yeah. Like wherever the first string ever happened in the universe, it it operated the same way. It had an octave in the middle and it sure. had the notes. And it's like, it's kind overtone of. The overtone series is a mathematical. Yeah. yeah. But within that, it's back to art, you know. Sure. It's like it's not everything isn't perfect. The, right. The twelve tone scale is not perfect. It's mm-hmm. it's a matter of making it pretty. Right. You know, it's like if you tuned the piano perfectly in C, mathematically correct, it would play. As you fur- as you went further away from that key center, it would sound worse and worse until it was sure. just terrible. Yeah,
1: you get to the tritone, F sharp, G flat. then yeah, it's, it's not going to have...
0: be just like clank. Yeah. So. Um, It's really about the art of tuning it so that it makes everything nice where you enjoy it. And it's like you you appreciate the sound of it, but it's not about perfection. And I think that's um, a discussion I've had with some of my younger clients who are really, really good, um, you know, going to top music schools and stuff. And then at one point in their music, they start hearing you know their ear is so developed they start hearing problems they mm-hmm. just hear like nothing's in tune i can't get this in tune yeah nothing's in tune and so i have this like conversation sometimes that it's never gonna be right you're gonna have to look at it differently if you're seeking perfection you're it's a dead-end street it's gonna have yeah. to seek the art instead yeah. and usually they all go yeah oh it's liberating, <laughs> really sure. it's like, make it sound good. Don't think about it so much, right. you know, because right. you can get real obsessive. A guy that obsesses enough to become a, a really great player can go down the rabbit hole in other directions and obsess on things of that, course. that take him off track. Of course. Know? Like a guy will come over and go, this bass just makes this sound, you know, when I do this. Yeah. I'm like, do you ever do that when you're playing? No. Yeah. <laughs> it does this, you know? And but like, when I do this thing, it does, yeah. You know? And I want to get rid of the sound form, but, yeah. but I also noticed that you're dwelling on it. You know, right. you found this one thing that's wrong. And everything else is music. So instead of playing the music, you're you're just fixated on that problem. Right. That's all in your head. You got to escape that. So So you get you get called a lot to do the extensions, And you also
1: get called a lot to convert bases into road bases. Yeah. This is something I recently learned that you do. So you could take a base that's not a flyaway base or not a portable travel base and create one out of that. Talk about that
0: process um there's a guy out there that's on tour a lot right now um jeff denson he's a jazz player from berkeley and mm-hmm. berkeley california and he's always touring everywhere and he brought me a bass early on um first of all i should say that the travel base idea here this particular design uh started at Weimar, and the old owner who was um also an engineer, it was really instrumental in coming up with some clever features. You know, like this has a pivot built in here that's like a half round. You can't see it on this face, but it's a half right. round of aluminum. And then the neck itself in the heel has a notch cut into it. and It has a solid reinforcing bar and, and the bolt going through it. So it pivots. When you adjust this bolt right here, it, it affects the uh, pitch of the neck. Yeah. And the projection of the you know the fingerboard where it's aiming, which is a really neat adjustment. Uh, but you take this bolt out, loosen the strings, and then take the bolt out. Actually, But yeah. And the neck comes out, and it all goes in the box, like sure. Like, like Do the rotation over there in the corner, which is basically just barely tall enough to hold the body. Yeah. And much more manageable than the extra two and a half feet of base to come out. Sure. So. And weight-wise uh it's but i believe they're just under the weight yeah for the the tsa and we need we need to come up with a new box design to stay there i think because at the old shop we had this um, this cool guy that was a specialist at making them and he obsessed on it and really the flyweight. created this the uh, the box Oh, they, okay. actually the box is the one of the tricks and basically it was the old box was corrugated plastic like looked that cardboard but it was super light and surprisingly durable because it could get crunched and and dented and bent and it would never just break. It would yeah. just like you know have lots of wear and tear. Yeah, and there's guys out there like like Danny um, Clark and Kristen McBride. Space was just here, and his box is just like, yeah, that thing's been everywhere. Yeah, you know, it's just like <laughs> the only thing holding it together the stickers. But, I mean, <laughs> it was still holding together, and like I I did a little you know upgrade on it. Few weeks ago and worked on his base because uh, they've had a couple pieces that were coming loose, and he's back on the road with it and nice. the thing just takes a beating and keeps going like having the neck come out makes the base a lot safer to travel sure because that's one of the things that breaks it's yeah. under the pressure it's long it's fragile too much leverage and once that breaks you're not playing that bass anymore on that tour right you, know, you got a problem right so it's a huge advantage but on people's bases, where I do the transition, like Jeff Denson's bass is a really neat old Buseto, and I don't remember what it was. It's a Czech bass, a very nice bass. I don't know what it was. But it, uh, you know, removed the neck and put in the mechanism and set it up and we do a thing where we put a little pin in the sound post once it's in a really good spot. And then it's got a tiny foam donut on the back and that keeps the post in place when the pressure's off because that's when the post can fall and also ruin your your tour. And it's easy to change, but I I go to a lot of effort to make sure it's in a really good spot before we pin it in and stuff. And then that has the added advantage that the post never moves again. So sure. I think the bass develops a memory around that a little bit and settles, you know. And yeah, the wood's going to adapt to it all. Yeah. yeah. And usually, if it already sounds good, it'll just sound better. And over time, as it stays there. And I
1: feel like even that's, I mean, that's just a good thing to have on a bass that's being transported a lot locally, even if you're flying with it or not. Like it's true. You know, I transport my bass regularly, and it's like I always have to get my sound post kind of. Yeah. I have to check in with the sound post pretty
0: regularly. Yeah. And so it's it's yeah, it's been kind of a lesson for me understanding that people are able to take their bass apart and put it back together correctly and have it still sound good and play right. Because sometimes people are so you know, lost when the bridge gets bumped and they're just like it's all screwed up. You know? yeah, so, yeah. so it's actually good for the player. Like on the travel base we'll put a box up front with a ballpoint pen or something. So you can't even see it. Like these have boxes around them. Okay. But if the
1: So you know where to set
0: your bridge. If the yeah if the bridge is in the right spot you can't even tell. But if you see the box then you know it's then got you know it's a little, it's little off. off. Yeah. And the next can adjust side to side also you can change the, the pitch. Okay. And the angle that it's pointing. So you can really fine tune a base that's been converted to be perfect. You can address a lot of sure. issues with a base. Like my own personal base is about an 1890s unknown German builder that really fell by the wayside and it was in bad shape. And had a 43 inch neck, like was, the nut was like here. Yeah. And it was an E flat neck, which I don't uh, particularly really like, the a nut that used to them, but it was so long. And it was a, and it had no overstand, which is the part here that sticks out from the body, which is important, especially if you're playing Arco, because if you imagine that this neck would move back that way, most of this distance, then when you're bowing, now suddenly this whole unit is much closer and you end up right. you know, with a lot less room to operate. Yeah, when you hit the sides. It also affects the geometry um, of the base because this has uh got to match, you know, so that your bridge ends up in a centered angle and it's not like flat here and really steep here. Sure. Because that makes the bridge want to go places and Yeah, it's going to pull it in either direction. And it affects the sound, too, because this is leverage on the instrument that's involving it. Like, (laughs) to visualize that, imagine if this whole unit was this long. Yeah. So this is, like, a foot and a half long. Imagine the amount of force that the string tension would be pulling downward on this top and levering this into that, you know, like squeezing it. Yeah. So that makes a difference in the tone and the energy of the instrument, too. So when you do a conversion, it's an opportunity to fix all of that. So so on my old bass, I had the good fortune of uh, Ron Carter having a a flyaway bass, Mm. and something happened to his neck and it developed some little cracks in the heel. So I made him a new neck, and I kept the old neck, and it had the fingerboard on it and everything. And I was like, wow, this neck would fit in my old bass and solve all my problems, <laughs> you know, because it would change it to a 41. I was just was like brainstorming. Yeah. I'm like, okay, let's do that. So I turned my old bass into a travel bass. So you base. have Ron Carter's old I neck. I got Ron Carter's you know? old, old neck. And it's, it's a 41 inch scale now, and it's a okay. D neck, and it's Ron's old neck. Yeah. Know? And I'm like, ah. yeah, yeah. And, uh, it changed everything, and I was able to bring the overstand out because my old bass had none. You could barely put, like, a pencil. Line. Oh, wow. Um, it was all wrong, so it, now it's all right. And cool. So it's a a bass might be a good candidate that had some problems, and you'd be able to correct it. Yeah, it turned into really a really, really, into really, shape. really winning bass. And like Jeff Denson said about his, that he liked it better now than before we converted it. I oh, thought oh, it man. sounded better, and, you know... It's real adaptable, like this wrench, you can adjust on the fly. And when Ron plays, this is his bass right here, actually. Yeah. yeah, I was playing it a little earlier. And uh, that's his West Coast travel base. Ted over here. Yeah. Put it on the yep. And this is all set up how he likes it. Yeah. And it's got his strings on it, his signature strings that he plays. tuning but anyway he'll adjust this on the fly like i watched him at the Catalina club and brought him this bass and he played it for his for his uh, whole engagement there and he'll pull the wrench out of his pocket and just give it a little tweak like right in the middle of the show you know and it it just barely makes it go out of tune it's just so little that you know you just fine-tune it a little and you're fine and he loves that feature about it, you know, even though he didn't have to fly out there from New York with this one, he still wanted to use this bass because he can sure. instantly he can make it feel it right in. for yeah. him, you know, and keep it there. So it's, it's a very cool um, instrument, you know, it's a cool design. So since I've taken over making them, because when I joined uh, Weimer. it was in 2014, and it was thanks to Dave Rowe again from okay. Nashville because I was like, Dave, I can't take Wisconsin anymore. It's twenty degrees here, t- minus twenty, and he's like, "I'm like, I'm thinking of moving back to Nashville." He goes, "Don't bother. This town sucks." <laughs> <laughs> it was like Nashville had become Vegas, you know. And he's yeah. like, "You won't like it anymore. The old Nashville you lived in was, you know, gone. Man, so, thing of the past." So I was like, "Sad." I was like, "Darn."
2: <laughs> what
0: am I gonna do? He goes, "But he goes, you still." uh base food three right doing base food three and i said yeah he goes i know a shop in southern california that needs you great and so he called lemur yeah and talked to the old owner and told her about me and he he goes yeah she really wants to meet you so she flew me out here okay and and it was just really intense it was the weirdest time my wife was pregnant, about seven months pregnant, with our third child. Um, her mom had just passed away, like, barely a year before this. We get, I get to Weimar, and it's owned by a couple, Tony sure. and Jerry. And Jerry was sick with cancer at the time I got here, and this was part of the problem. And they had no luthiers. They had stuff that had been sitting here for a while, and people were getting stressed, uh, you know, and... And Jerry was on his deathbed. And I remember Tony going, oh, you'll meet Jerry. And, and then Joel, the manager, goes, Jerry died today. <laughs> oh,
2: my gosh. Okay. <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> it was like,
0: <laughs> that's heavy. It was heavy. It was yeah. all heavy everywhere we went. And and I felt like, oh, uh, this is insane. I can't come out here with my pregnant wife and move my entire life back to the West Coast. But I really, really wanted to because my mom is here. Yeah. yeah. She's not getting any younger. And, and uh, I felt really like I need to be out here, but I don't know what to do. And I was at Laguna Beach with my friend Tom where I was staying while I was out here doing the work. You know, it was kind of like my test. Yeah. Um, you know, my like trial by fire. I came out here and and fixed all the problem bases they had in about in about a week. You know, just okay. like hauled ass through them. But I was sitting on the beach watching Tom surf and I was like, this is never gonna work. One of my dreamings, oh crap, you know, this is ridiculous. And then it was like a voice came into my head. And just sort of slapped sense into me. He goes, you're from Southern California. Your grandfather's buried right there. Your ashes are in between Newport and Laguna. Okay. And it's like, if you don't belong here, you don't belong anywhere. Yeah. It just, just sort of back. like, I was like, no kidding. Nah. That's a fact, you know, I'm like multi-generational Californian. So I called my wife. I go, let's do it. It was like in that that scene in the world according to GARP where the plane hits the house and he'll go, we'll take it. (laughs) Really? Why would you want it? He goes, it's pre (laughs) disaster. It's only up from here. You know, I kind of felt the same way. I'm like, everything's so, you know, challenging. Yeah. That. it's only gonna get better. Ah, See, we got no it, choice man. but to rise to challenges all around us and that you know, get the game on. Yeah. Just and, say yes. And she said, Yeah, let's do it then. So we I said yeah to the job and yeah. and um, a couple months later we loaded up the moving van and we cut it out. Cool, again. man. And it was a, a neat you know experience. And then I learned how to how these were a thing. And yeah. And there was no one making them anymore at the time because they didn't have any luthiers or anything. So I picked up the ball again on this. Cool. and Altered them a little bit. Changed a little bit. Few things, you know, that make them sound better and easier to make. Yeah. Started using carbon fiber in here instead. And, uh, reinforced the neck with carbon fiber so that it wouldn't change on the road. Okay. Because that was the problem. Because these things spend a lot of time in, like, airplane baggage. Yeah, parts, right. You know, which is cold and... And dry and things would happen in there. Necks would change and crack or just, you know, go bad, basically. Sure. So I overcame all those problems. Jason, thanks and, so much for doing this, man. Huh? Thanks so much for doing this. We're about out of it's, time. It's, but, a uh, neat, it's a neat thing. And, I mean, yeah, i yeah, glad you were able to talk about it. The, the thing I like about these basses is that they sound like a regular bass. Yeah. Sounds good. You're not... You, uh, and beyond, like not sacrificing anything, because like it's a travel base, but it's not quite as good as my main base, They end up being your main base. Yeah. Most of the people I know with these, when they're not on the road, they keep them together and they go. And they're still gigging with it. Yeah, of course. Whether they're, they're a converted base or whether they're, um, this is one where we were always getting a, the same product uh, of a hybrid base with a carved top and. And ply back and sides built to the specs and delivered unfinished. You know, yeah. I mean, it had the finish varnish on it, but the neck was out, the fingerboard was off, nothing was together. So it just converted it at that point into being one of these originally. You right. Know, like it starts its life as this, like this one did. But they're so neat. They're- why not just have a travel base? You know, yeah, it's like it, it feels as good as any base, except you can adjust it instantly. Yeah. You just you have one control over it. And uh, so it's a fun thing. So that's since we're back here with Tammy in the new lemur, which I want to add something about. It's been great because I parted ways with the old lemur a few years ago because it was just got difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think she was really ready to retire. And wow. I was... Ready for new things, so sure. I ended up um, at the guitar shop in Laguna Beach, which was a really neat. It is a really neat old school guitar uh, builder, Kirk Sand, built some of the world's best classical guitars. And they also are just a great local shop, kind of like McCabe's or something, okay. you know, where they, yeah. they got That's right around all the, corner the time. Yeah, yeah, it's a similar vibe. You know, there's yeah. always like some famous people cruising the place. Right. It's got like its own presence
1: when you walk yeah, in. Yeah, they've
0: been there since 72. Yeah. It's right on the beach, practically, in yeah. North Laguna. And, and they basically rescued me and, and put me to work right away. And I became their guitar luthier. Sure. Okay. But then I realized what was going on is people would call and go, "Hey, I need my bass fixed." And, you know they'd call me and I go, well, I'm not at Weimar anymore." they' go, "Well, where are you?" But right. we'll come to you And then they' right. just come there, and pretty soon the guitar shop was filled up with bases you know, <laughs> the place, and I 'm like, "Oh, this is bad yeah. I'm overwhelming the shop, so I started my own shop okay and, and got really lucky because all the clients kept coming to me and yeah. and then uh, at the beginning of last year, Tammy took over mm-hmm. T, right. and uh, she asked me if I wanted to get involved again. And I said, yeah, because the tea's great. Yeah. She's, a, she's been there forever, even, even uh, you know, been through the ringer there and, and came back and stuff. Sure. You know? And now she's the new owner and it's a whole new vibe, new, new location yeah and so we're bringing the flyaway back Good. and we just got the first one out to Nathan East, mm-hmm. and he took it away last month yeah and um so that's kind of my my vision is that we bring this back and add uh the extension uh, the, the C extension because there's a need for students, like you've got people that are serious about the base and they they go to New York City to study now like for college, yeah. And then they're always trying to come home. I come like, home for Christmas. I come home for spring break. Right. Do you have a base we could borrow? How am I going to deal with this? i got to travel my base. i got to do all this crap. I'm playing all these bases I don't like. I'm sure. always on a different base. It's a very hard thing. I don't have a C extension. So yeah. I think that this addresses all of it. Yeah. yeah, so, all of it right there. So what we're doing is trying to make a more affordable version. And I found a different wood to make C extensions out of. Because this one's ebony. Okay. Ebony is getting more and more scarce, and that's traditional. But I just made one the other day out of Wenge, which is African hardwood, Mm -hmm. and it worked great. And it's also about a third the weight. Okay. My extensions are super light because the parts are aluminum instead of brass. Do you
1: notice the total difference when you go from the actual ebony fingerboard into the Wenge extension? It,
0: it sounded great. Okay. I, it just, I didn't notice anything except that it sounded awesome and it weighed just nothing. It's like you couldn't tell there was one up there. Okay. Which is great for everything and the travel base. Sure. And,. So I can make it much more affordable for a student because it's a, you know, it's a big commitment. But if you're serious about classical music, you really have to yeah. have the C extension or a five string. And in American classical music, it's really the C extension that's prevalent. Yeah. So I'm really excited about that. And I'd like to, you know, be a game changer where more and more of these students can have a great bass and take it with them on spring break and take it there on Christmas and take it with them when they move. Bring it back when they're done or whatever and just have it be not an issue sure. and then still be a great orchestra base, you know. And where can and, where can people
1: reach you? Can Lemur.com and that'd be yeah. Do you have through, an email address on the website um, is there a specific yeah. one but they can
0: mainline it to you? I think just the lemur.com because okay. like I'm doing this while most of my luthery is through my own shop. It's mm-hmm. like I'm really specializing like my own C extensions for clients that come to me or or setups. But this is through Lemur. Okay, is a you know like a Lemur product that, sure. that I'm making. Okay, for them or with them. Yeah, and we're trying to advance you know like the the concept of it and Great. and the marketplace for it so that uh, more and more students are able to have a much more stable base plane yeah. experience yeah. you know and, and take it further because it's. Not the easiest thing in the world to do, and I think that the nature of it—I've seen it discourage a lot of great players that you know get to the point where they're like, "Do I want to really do this man. the rest of my life, or do I want to even do this for college?" And some of them say it's no. not, the whole
1: instrument's a commitment. And, yeah.
0: Yeah, and they play a, they played a bass their whole life. They played so hard they hated it, and yeah. they yeah. never really had the fun with it that I know they could have. Sure. So i won't to be here to bring the fun back into the game. Yeah, man. Yeah. That's so that's where that's at Cool man
1: Cool Dude thanks so much I gotta wrap this up Because I got right. to catch my gig Back in LA <laughs>
0: <laughs> Sorry I feel like I talk too much No no no, no. That's
1: all great <laughs> stuff man right right. that was my talk with luthier and double bassist jason brown if you are enjoying the bass shed podcast please hit subscribe wherever you are listening to it i'm also on facebook.com backslash the bass shed on twitter at bass shed on instagram at the bass shed uh the youtube the youtube channel is youtube.com backslash c backslash the bass shed can find me on all those places and there are links to them at thebayshed.com about thebayshed.com I'm still wrapping up the, the funk bass lines of James Brown I just did some videos on Jimmy Blanton and the solo vocabulary of the legendary Jimmy Blanton uh, all that is on YouTube and at thebayshed.com so you can check that out uh, if you're interested in keeping the Bayshed podcast happening you can donate at thebayshed.com backslash podcast um, yeah, that just goes to, you know, keeping the lights on, so to speak. Uh, cause this all, this all takes time and resources to keep happening. Um, so you can do that along for every, for every donation. You know, I'm, I'm more than happy, more than happy to give a shout out to all the donors on the mic. And so hopefully you guys can, uh, and women and that's, that wasn't gender specific. That was very generic. All the the donors, all the donors, I'll give a shout out on the mic to social media handles so you guys can uh, get some more eyes and ears on what you're doing uh, with music and on the bass. So there's all that. Uh, That's about all I got, folks. That's all I got for this one. I will catch you on the next one in a minute.